We have read this morning of the coming of the gospel to the nations and your sovereignty, not just over the nations, or not just over Israel, but over the nations as well, O Lord our Father. And here we read of your mercy to the nations and your justice. Would you give us minds to understand the richness of what you have provided for us? Would you, would you keep us humble before you? Would you keep us grateful to you? And would you transform us by this word? We need to be transformed. And so would you produce your changing power in us and through us? We, we long to be like our Savior who has saved us. Would you accomplish that even by this word we pray? Guide us. Direct us. Give us understanding. We ask in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. We live in a world where there are disappointments, big disappointments and little disappointments. They all bring some measure of grief and sadness into our lives. You had, for instance, plans for a vegetable garden in spring. It didn't rain. You didn't have a vegetable garden. And what you did have of a vegetable garden, the birds and the squirrels got before you did. A storm brings too much rain to South Texas and none to North Texas. And two communities are disappointed over the same event for two very different reasons. You underestimate the amount of a bill and you watch your savings go down instead of up. You start a scratchy throat two nights before a major presentation and you have to speak that presentation in a whisper because of laryngitis. You were abused as a child. And that is a story and a tale that is way too common. And it's left you hardened, bitter, grieved, disappointed. Your wife left you for another man. Your child died in infancy of an unexpected illness. Your sibling, your parent, your child gave a profession of faith 30 years ago, but in the intervening 30 years have, has not given any evidence of genuine faith in Jesus Christ and even now mocks the name of Christ. Most of us have experienced one or more of those scenarios, and it is tempting when we experience those things to say, God has made a promise, God has not delivered, God must not be faithful. And that, that's the very statement, that's the very sentiment, that's the very question that the Apostle Paul has been dealing with all throughout chapter 9, particularly as it relates to salvation. Is, is God faithful to save those whom He calls to salvation? And Paul demonstrates that God does indeed elect and choose and plan those who will be saved as both an expression of His mercy and an expression of His just wrath against those who do not believe. He even, as a, as a means of demonstrating His mercy, elects and saves Gentiles who were not part of the original plan of salvation for the nation of Israel. And He elects them and saves them. And Paul, in this passage before us, starting in verse 30, asks one final question about God's faithfulness. Notice verse 30. Helps to get the right chapter. What shall we say then? What will we say? What will we say about God's elective plan of salvation? What will we say about God's mercy? What will we say about God's justice? What will we say about God's faithfulness? What we will say from these verses is this, that God's elective salvation is always merciful and faithful. 
God's elective plan and God's saving plan and God's actual salvation by which He saves men is always merciful and it is always faithful. We can trust Him. We can depend on Him. And as we come to this question, what will we say? What will we say about God's salvation plan, about God's election? The Apostle offers us three final answers to the question about God's faithfulness to the question about God's fairness. The first of those answers is given to us in verse 30. What shall we say? We will say that God is merciful. What should we say about God's plan of salvation? We should say that God is merciful. Again, the question that Paul asks beginning this section in verse 30 is, what will we say? This is a particular question. Uh, This is a particular phraseology. This is a particular way that the apostle likes to transition between sections. And so when he asks this question, as he does frequently in this epistle, it's often as a means of summarizing what he has already said. So for instance, in chapter 3, he begins unfolding the plan of salvation by grace through faith, that faith is the impetus by which we are saved. It is the the mechanism by which we are saved. And he says in verse 4, what shall we say then? Same question that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. In other words, having said this about faith, then what shall we continue to say about faith? In chapter 5, he unfolds the riches of God's grace that is poured out through Jesus Christ and how the second Adam, Jesus Christ, uh, saves us from sin, moves us from being in Adam to being in Christ by an amazing gift of grace. Then he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, having talked about the magnitude of God's grace and how God's grace is unending and unceasing, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? So should we take advantage of this grace and, 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 and invest in sin even more so that we can get even more of God's grace? Chapter 8, verse 31, what will we say to these things? That is, what will we say to these things about the, the riches of God's Spirit and how God's Spirit brings about our salvation, uh, keeps us in our salvation and works our salvation, that salvation through us? What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who is against us? So when Paul uses this question, as he does here in chapter 9, he's summarizing what has gone on before. And we can anticipate that what follows is going to be a summary of the opening verses of chapter 9. But when he asks that question, he's not just summarizing. Even as you perhaps caught a hint as I was reading those other sections, he's also uh, moving forward and advancing the idea that he has established in the preceding section and taking it to the next step. And so in chapter 9, he has been talking about God's elective purposes, God's plan of salvation, how God has decreed and planned and purposed and foreordained our salvation. But then notice in verses 30 to 33, he says almost nothing about God's election. Instead, He focuses in verse 30 on the pursuit of the Gentiles. They did not pursue righteousness. So so the Gentiles who were not saved is because they were not pursuing the righteousness of God. Verse 31, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness. So, So the pursuit of righteousness is dependent on what the Israelites were doing themselves. Um... Verse 32, verse 33, he talks about the stumbling of the nation of Israel. Notice he says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. In other words, they stumbled, but it was their fault. It was their responsibility. It's not God's fault that they didn't come into salvation. It is their rejection and their rebellion. We find that same theme in chapter 10, verse 3. For not knowing about the righteous, about God's righteousness, again speaking about Israel, and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So it is their rebellion, it is their lack of submission, it is their lack of following God that results in their condemnation before God. In chapter 10, verse 8 and following, he speaks about the necessity of faith. What does it say? The Lord is near you, verse 8 of chapter 10. In your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, God comes by grace, God calls, God elects, but you must believe, you must exercise faith, you must trust. and, And if you don't exercise trust and you reap the consequences, it's 
It's on you. It's your fault. It is, is your responsibility. And, and so when Paul asks this question, what shall we say then? He's, he's summarizing what he has said about God's elective purposes and he's starting to transition to where he will go next and that is the responsibility of mankind to uh, respond to God in faith. And the question that Paul asks is somewhat rhetorical, but he also provides some very clear answers to what should we should declare in light of God's elective plan and man's responsibility. What should we say? We should say that God is merciful, specifically about God's mercy. We need to recognize that some who didn't want righteousness were declared righteous. There was a, a group of people who didn't want righteousness, and the apostle identifies them in verse 30. He says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. The, the group of people that didn't want righteousness was Gentiles. Now notice, he doesn't, he doesn't say the Gentiles. He simply says Gentiles. And he's, he's not saying that the totality of all Gentiles everywhere never pursued a genuine righteousness of God and none of and 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 thereby all of them not pursuing God were ultimately saved he's not saying all of them he is simply leaving open that there are some so he doesn't say the gentiles with the article to specify everyone but he says generally gentiles that is some gentiles uh, this is true of, that they did not pursue righteousness and they came to attain righteousness anyway. And to say that they did not pursue righteousness is not to say that they did not want any kind of righteousness. It is to say that they did not want a particular kind of righteousness. They did not want God's righteousness. They didn't want the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, though though they may have wanted some form of righteousness. And we, we even see an example of that in Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 17. So when, um, when uh, Paul got to Athens, it says, Luke records for us in Acts 17 verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I observe that you are very religious in all respects. So there is some kind of pursuit of righteousness that you are desiring. There's some kind of religiosity that you want. There's, there's some kind of standard that you want to attain so that you can be right before God. And, and then he says, verse 23, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So, so you've been worshiping this. You've been pursuing this. You've been desiring this, this God, this form of righteousness, this standard of living, this way of living. Again, he says in verse 28, speaking about God, he says, For in Him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. So again, he's pointing to the fact that their own poetry, their own writings, have been moving them towards a form of righteousness. The, the form of righteousness, though, is just skewed, and he's pointing them to the truth. Now, it's still true today, isn't it, that there are some who don't pursue righteousness, but they... That is the, the true righteousness of God, but they want something of righteousness. They, 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 they want to, to do some things moralistically and, and do some things right. And so your neighbor or, or, or your coworker or the person you run to, into at the grocery store might, might very well say something, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty decent fellow. I'm not, I'm not so bad. I mean, I, I love my wife. I love my kids. I, I love to serve them. I, I love to do good things for them. I, I, I want them to be happy. I, I, I want to be kind to them. And so he's pursuing a standard of righteousness, but he's wanting that righteousness without Christ. A few years ago, Warren Buffett pledged to give more than $30 million, a million, excuse me, $30 billion, got to get your M's and B's correct, he pledged to give over $30 billion over 20 years to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a billion and a half dollars a year for 20 years. At the press conference making the announcement of the gift, and there's a slight problem in that right there, but he said this, 
There is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. So, so there's a man who in his folly is pursuing a kind of righteousness. He's, he's wanting to do good things. He's wanting to be beneficent to the culture and, and meet the needs of people. He's just doing it in his own strength and in his own wisdom and apart from Christ. When Paul says they didn't pursue righteousness, it's not just that they didn't pursue the righteousness of God, it is that they had no zeal for the righteousness of God. The the, the word pursuit denotes some kind of race or even a hunting activity. The word pursuit actually is translated in numerous New Testament passages as the word persecute. So we are so zealous for something it can be said that we are pursuing it to persecute. And Paul says they, they, had, they had, did not have that passion. They did not have that desire. They were not hunting for the righteousness of God. They were not racing after the righteousness of God. They didn't see any need for the righteousness of God, so they were uninterested in the righteousness of God, and they were not going after the righteousness of God. Ironically, and that's in contrast to the Israelites who were pursuing a form of righteousness. Now, this, this is the essence of sin. It is not that God's righteousness is missed. It is that God's righteousness is rejected. So we often say that sin is missing the mark so that God has created a standard. You know, we've got the bow and arrow, as it were, shooting at the mark of God. It's not that we miss and we're just a little bit off center. It's like, well, if I was only like two inches closer to the middle, I'd be dead center and I'd be okay. No, no, no. That's not the point of missing the mark. The point of missing the mark is I reject that standard, and I pursue my own standard. I rebel against what God has said is righteousness. I not only miss the mark, I don't want the mark. I don't want God's righteousness. I want nothing to do with God. I reject Him. Now here is the amazing irony, is that there were some among the Gentiles who were not zealous for the righteousness of God. And notice what he says next. They attained righteousness. There were some who didn't yearn for God's righteousness, and those were the very ones who were declared righteous. Again, not all of them, but there were some among those who were Gentiles who were declared to be righteous. And receiving the righteousness of God when it is not pursued is the story of numerous Old Testament believers. It is the story of Abraham. It is the story of the Ninevites in Jonah's day. It is the story of Nebuchadnezzar and Ruth and Rahab. It is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. It is the story of those who were alive in the first days of the early church. Listen to what Luke records for us in Acts chapter 14. Verse 24, they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia And from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And verse 27, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and that how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. What to the Gentiles? Gentiles weren't interested in God. They weren't interested in Christ. And some of them were saved as God opened that door of salvation to them. This is what it means to receive God's mercy. As he says to Moses, 9.15 of Romans, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God, God responds, not responds, God directs, God elects, God chooses not on the basis of what we are, but on the basis of His mercy and His grace and His compassion. As one writer has said, to receive what you don't desire or pursue is a curious paradox. It's not just a curious paradox. It is only because of the mercy of God. It is, it is His kindness, His pity on us that some who didn't want righteousness are declared righteous nonetheless. How did, how did these receive the gift? Those who were declared righteous all receive, always receive this gift 
through faith. They always receive it through faith. Notice what he says in verse 30. They attained righteousness. What kind of righteousness, Paul? Even, that is, we might say, even the righteousness which is by faith. It is the, the, the righteousness they received is the righteousness that only comes by faith. It is, not, it is not a gift that comes by merit. It is a gift that comes by trusting in Christ alone. It is the gift that comes by saying, I cannot, you must. It is, the, it is the gift that comes to those who are not doing anything to try to attempt to, to merit the salvation of God, but they recognize they, they have nothing meritorious, they have nothing they can give, and even the act of faith is not in itself something that they do. The act of faith is to acknowledge, I cannot. There's nothing good in me. There's nothing righteous in me. I cannot do this. I, I submit myself only to the grace of God. This is exactly what the Apostle was writing about in chapter 3 that we read earlier this morning. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Where is boasting in our salvation? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of law. Man is justified, declared righteous, only by faith. It is not what he has done on his own. Chapter 4, verse 5, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited or accounted or imputed as righteousness. Verse 23, same chapter. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our, trans, of, of our justification. It is, all, it is all by God's grace and mercy and received through faith alone. This little phrase that Paul uses here in chapter 9, by faith, is an interesting little phrase. It's used 23 times in the New Testament. 21 times the Apostle Paul uses it, by faith. Twelve of the 21 times Paul uses that phrase, by faith, it's in the book of Romans. Paul wants us to understand as we read this, the only means ever that any man will ever be saved is by faith and never by merit. And and the remarkable and astounding and amazing news is that any person can respond to God in faith and receive this righteousness of God. Look over chapter 10, verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Whoever believes. And the inference is, anyone can believe. Who, who do you mean, whoever, Paul? Verse 12, he specifies, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Jew and Greek, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. If you call on Him, you respond to Him in faith, you will be saved by Him. Verse 13, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So salvation is always by grace and through faith. So here's the question. What are you pursuing today? What kind of righteousness do you want Are you seeking your own righteousness, trying to prove how good you are before a perfect God? You may not be pursuing the righteousness of God, but your only hope for salvation is God's righteousness. There's nothing else by which you will be saved. And it is made available to you. You can have God's righteousness if you simply believe. Friend, you must renounce your efforts You must renounce what you believe to be your goodness and your power and your strength. You must renounce all that and say, I can't, Christ must. And friend, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, I I beg you, I I plead with you, I urge you, I I compel you, you you must trust Him. This is your only hope. 
We'll see this in a moment. Without, without Christ, you have nothing. You will be condemned. You will fail. But with Christ, you will have everything that you're pursuing. And, and we will see a little bit later how that will not be disappointing to you. Whatever else is disappointing in life, God is faithful and He will not disappoint you. Friend, if you, if you have not trusted, will you trust in Christ today? This is, this is all, the salvation plan is all of God's mercy. It's all of His kindness. It's all of His compassion towards us. It's all of His righteousness and none of our own. What shall we say about this elective plan of God? We will say that it is merciful. We will also say, secondly, that God is just. That God is just. Verses 31 and 32, in contrast to the Gentiles who did not want righteousness and were declared righteous, here in verse 31 are some who did, not, who did want righteousness and they were not declared righteous. In contrast to the Gentiles who believe, here in verse 31 we see the condition of Israel. The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness. That's verse 30. But verse 31, Israel did pursue righteousness. They Notice what he says, verse 31. Um, they pursued a law of righteousness. Not just, not just were they wanting righteousness, but they were zealous for it. They were hunting after it. They were longing after it. They were racing towards it. And what were they racing towards? They were racing towards not just righteousness, but notice he says, a law of righteousness. This is the only place in the New Testament where that little phrase, a law of righteousness, is used. And it, it has the sense of they are pursuing a legal kind of righteousness. That is, a legal kind of righteousness which they receive themselves through their obedience to the law. So that as they keep the law, as they maintain the law, as they fulfill the law, that they have a righteousness that is of their own. They, they observe the law and then they are declared righteous on the basis of their obedience to the law. The problem is that every man is born a sinner and every man sins and even one violation of the law condemns him. So James chapter 2, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Just, just one small violation and we're guilty of the whole thing. The problem is that, is that we cannot keep the law on our own. But, but Israel was compelled, desirous of maintaining and keeping the law on their own as a means of righteousness. This was even the story of the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter 3. I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law. That is, as we examine the law and, and the righteousness that comes from obedience to the law, as I consider my life in relationship to the law, he says, found blameless. If anyone can be saved by obedience to the law, Paul says, it's me. And then listen to verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, that is, through the law and my own righteousness, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. They're inadequate. They could not save me. They did not save me. I was not able to be saved that way. We cannot we will not obey God perfectly. If, if we could keep the law, we could be saved. But friends, we can't keep it. We're born sinners and we sin. We will sin. There is no righteousness to be found in our own obedience to God. Now when the Apostle says, 
Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. He does not mean that there were no saved Israelites, but he is saying that the nation, as a nation, which had been chosen by God to this point, had not, as a nation, trusted in Christ, the Messiah. And instead, the nation, as a nation, in general, pursued after its own righteousness. There were individuals that were saved, We find those scattered throughout the Old Testament and even into the first parts of the New Testament. Abraham was saved by faith. Joseph, the groom of Mary, was saved by faith. Zacharias and Elizabeth were declared righteous. Simeon, prophets and other righteous men, Matthew 13, Abel. John the Baptist, the unnamed tax collector in Proverbs uh, in, the, in the parable in Luke chapter 18. Joseph of Arimathea was a righteous man, even Lot was declared righteous, not on the basis of anything that he was, because everything we read about him, he's kind of a scoundrel. But but Peter calls him righteous lot. He's declared righteous, not on the basis of what he has accomplished. He He is found righteous on the basis of that whom he was trusting. But the vast majority, the nation, they're lost. They're not declared righteous. They fell short. And they were condemned. Notice what he says at the end of verse 31. They're pursuing a law of righteousness. They did not arrive at that law. You know, there are some sentences in Scripture that are just so succinct, so precise, that they just come down like a hammer. And this is one of those sentences. They did not arrive. They they were pursuing the right thing. They they wanted righteousness. Their their failure was not in a desire for righteousness. Their failure was in pursuing the wrong kind of righteousness. They were pursuing self-righteousness rather than Christ-righteousness. And it had a terrible and tragic conclusion. There's another thing that we must see here about the justice of God, verse 32, and that is that those who are declared righteous never receive it through works. They never receive it through works. Why is it that they didn't arrive at some standard of righteousness, the law of righteousness that they were pursuing on their own? Why why did they not get there? Notice verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as though it were by works. They weren't interested in faith, but they were interested in self-righteous works. In fact, Paul is quite emphatic with his answer to the why question. We, We might render it this way, because not by faith, but as though by works. Not by faith, but as though by works. And it should have been exactly the opposite. Not, not by works, but as though by faith. And they rejected what was established with the father of their faith, Abraham. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. They reject the kind of faith that produced salvation for Abraham. The father of their faith came to faith in God this way, to salvation in God by faith. And they rejected the very way that the father of their faith came. The law does provide a righteousness. But the law provides righteousness only through someone who can obey it. And friend, there is one who has obeyed it. And that is the Savior, Jesus Christ. So it says in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so you can come to righteousness by pursuing a law of righteousness in that you you pursue the one who fulfilled the law of righteousness that is Jesus Christ so they had a right desire i want i want the righteousness that can come through the law they just thought that they could do it and they didn't understand that they couldn't do it but but Christ had done it for them and so we come to faith by trusting in the one who has fulfilled the law. Salvation by works has always failed and will always fail because once one sins, he's imperfect 
And once he is imperfect, it is impossible to be perfect again. It is a, imperfection is an irrevocable stain. We cannot be undone by ourselves from the stain of sin. Listen to what R.C. Sproul writes in his book, The Truth of the Cross. We must understand the true nature of the obligation God imposes on His creatures. How righteous are we required to be? How moral are we called to be? God demands perfect obedience, sinless perfection. This is the crux of the problem. If I am responsible to be perfect and I sin once, What must I do to be perfect? How much interest must I pay in addition to the principle in order to make up for the blemish? What do I have to do to become perfect after I have once been imperfect? Simply put, it is impossible. Once we sin, we become like Lady Macbeth, who after she manipulated her husband to commit murder, could not wipe out that indelible spot. Likewise, we cannot expunge our sin debt. Further, our problem is not that we are almost impeccable moral creatures with tiny blemishes marring an otherwise perfect record. Rather, the Scriptures describe us as woefully inadequate in terms of our obedience to God. It's not that we're just tainted by a peccadillo now and then. We have incurred a debt that is impossible for us to pay. And friends, I want you to notice the end. Because they pursued salvation by works... Paul concludes verse 32 and says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They became unacceptable to God, though they thought they were acceptable to Him on the basis of their works. They fell. They failed. They, in essence, tripped over the tripping stone. What is, what is the stone that Paul is referring to here? It is the stone of the coming Messiah. The Old Testament refers to this stone as the Messiah who will destroy all of the other nations. So the the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has in in Daniel chapter 2, the Messiah is the stone that will come and undo the reigns of all these other nations and, and the Messiah will set up as the stone the one enduring nation. Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 21, refers to himself as this stone. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 refers to Christ as this stone. Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Christ is the one over whom they stumble. Peter takes these same passages that Paul will quote in verse 33 from Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 8 and uses them in virtually an identical way to point to Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2, coming to Him, to Christ, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. So Christ... Christ is the one as the stone whom the Israelites were rejecting. And notice how they rejected verse 8. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That is, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. The stumbling, the, the reason they miss God is because of their disobedience to the word of God and the rebellion against the word of God. And notice the result, the end of verse 8, and to this doom they were also appointed. They are doomed. My friend, this is always the case. A failure to believe in Jesus Christ is a failure to have faith and it will produce doom. The failure of the Israelites is a failure of submission to Christ. It is a rejection of all that Christ is. 
And friend, Christ is always the decision point. Christ is and the cross are always the point of stumbling. Christ and the cross are always the things over which men stumble. Christ and the cross are always the epitome, the crux of the problem of mankind. Listen to what John Stott says. Why do people stumble over the cross? Because it undermines our self-righteousness. If we could gain a righteous standing before God by our own obedience to this law, the cross would be superfluous. If we could save ourselves, why should Christ have bothered to die? His death would have been redundant. The fact that Christ died for our sins is proof positive that we cannot save ourselves. But to make this humbling confession is an intolerable offense to our pride. So instead of humbling ourselves, we stumble over the stumbling stone. These verses are a reminder to us that what is essential in salvation is not the effort that is or is not made. What is essential is the object of our effort. Are we pursuing Christ or are we pursuing our own self-righteousness? Israel pursued righteousness by works and received the end of justification by works. Condemnation. Salvation is always and only by faith. And friend, if you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, then today you must recognize that you cannot be saved on your own. You do not have enough righteousness to save yourself. You will never save yourself on the basis of your good deeds if you try. And I use this word intentionally. You are doomed to failure. You will not make it on your own. If you are not a a Christian this morning, if you are not a follower of of Jesus Christ, I, I compel you, I urge you, trust in Christ today for your salvation. There's one more thing that Paul says we should say about God's elective purposes. It's given to us in verse 33. What should we say? We should say that God is not disappointing. God is not disappointing. The means of righteousness, as we have just seen, is and always has been Christ. So Paul, at the beginning of verse 33, quotes from Isaiah 28. And at the end of verse 33, quotes also from verse 20, uh, Isaiah 28. And in the middle, he interjects one little phrase from Isaiah chapter 8. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone. That's Isaiah 28. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's Isaiah 28. And in the middle... From Isaiah 8, he says, He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is, this is a warning that if you do not believe in the Messiah, if you do not trust in the Messiah, it doesn't matter what else you do, it doesn't matter what else your position is, you, you will stumble over Him, you will fall, you will fail. Tim Keller, Tim Keller has rightly said, Christ is a rock. We either found our lives upon or He is a rock over whom we stumble. If there is righteousness in you, it is only because of Christ in you. Christ is your righteousness if you are righteous. And if you you do not have Christ, there is nothing in you that is righteous in any way. You You do not have the righteousness of Christ if you do not have Christ. Instead, what you have is the condemnation of Christ. Friends, this is another reminder that you must believe in Christ alone. There, there is no other means for salvation. There is nothing else that we will say to point people to other than Jesus Christ. This is why the Apostle concludes his letter, uh, Romans 15, verse 17. He says, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found for boasting in things pertaining to God. It's, it's Christ, and it's, it's Christ alone that I will pursue. It's Christ alone that I will preach. Verse 18, Romans 15, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And we might say, alone. It's only Christ. It's Christ alone. Christ alone is what we proclaim. There is no other message. There is no other thing that we might give to this sin-sick world 
What, what will we hand them that will minister to them, that will help them except for Christ? The means of righteousness is and always has been Christ alone. And what will be the result of believing in Christ? Christ and His righteousness will never disappoint the one who believes. Notice what Paul says, the inner Romans 9, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. That is, faith in Christ will never leave you ashamed. Faith in Christ will never leave you homeless, uh, hopeless. God will not be faithless to the one who has faith in Him. His salvation will come about and will produce what He promised to produce in it. And, and now Paul has come, as it were, full so- circle. Remember chapter 9, he begins by, by pointing to the Israelites and saying, remember what the, what the Israelites had. They had the, they had the covenants of God. They had the promises of God. They, they had Abraham. They had, they had the law. They had temple services. They had the promises. They, they had, they had Christ. Christ came through the nation of Israel. They had the Messiah. They're God blessed forever. And they're not saved. Has God, has God failed? Verse 6, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. God has not failed. God is faithful. And now He comes full circle and picks up that theme again and says, if you believe in Him, you will not be disappointed. That is, the salvation that He has promised will come to fruition. It will come to completion. He will lavish you with all of the riches that He has promised in salvation. Remember what He said in chapter 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That glory, my friends, is coming. It is sure. It is a guarantee. He will keep us in that. We have no reason to be disappointed that He will abdicate on His promises. He will bring us to a full and complete and satisfying salvation. Will God fail us? No, friend. God will never fail us. There is no disappointment with Christ. This does not mean that life will be easy necessarily. That doesn't mean that all the problems will go away and that it will always rain just in time so your little vegetable garden will grow. That's not the point. The point is where you have a need in your sin-sick soul You will not be disappointed. He will bring you to salvation and He will keep you in it. He will fulfill what He has promised. He is faithful. Your trust in Christ is not ill-founded. It's an appropriate trust. He will fill you with everything you need. How we summarize what Paul has said, God saves Oh, friend, He mercifully saves by grace through faith alone. It is a merciful salvation that we have received. God condemns, God justly condemns those who seek righteousness by works. There is no righteousness to be had through works, through efforts on our own. And God is faithful. His merciful salvation, listen to me, cannot disappoint you. Because He is God, He is incapable of disappointing those who trust in Him. Let me draw just a couple of implications. The question is, of of what are you trusting for your salvation? Are you trusting Christ? Are you trusting yourself? Friend, if you're not trusting in Christ, that means on some level you are trusting yourself and you will never make it on your own. You must trust Christ. Christ alone. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, here's a question. What are you proclaiming to others for salvation? Oh, friends, be bold to say, if you trust in Christ, 
You will not be disappointed. He will bring your salvation to a, a final end and He will be satisfying to you. Not that life will be easy. Not that life is a bed of roses. Not, not that you get more of everything, more health and wealth. That's not the point. The point is salvation will be completed and He won't disappoint you in that. There's a sobering aspect for us to remember as well and that is that not everyone will be saved by this gospel as good as it is. Some Gentiles will. Some Israelites will, but many will not. And when they are not saved, it is because of their rejection of this message of God's grace and mercy. There's a corresponding implication, and that is anyone can be saved by this gospel by believing in Christ through faith. If you believe, He will save. That's His promise in chapter 10. One last question. If you are disappointed or ashamed of Christ, is it because you are pursuing a self-righteousness based on your own efforts? Is, is your disappointment because of your own failure and your own lack of trust and your own lack of reliance on Christ? It is, is your shame because you have not been satisfied with Christ's perfect righteousness? Is your shame because you have pursued a righteousness of your own and you've seen your failure? You've seen how you don't stack up, but you keep trying to press in and press on to being righteous on your own. And you just realize more and more you're not making it. Oh, friend, if that's you, you need to stop pursuing your own standards and trust that Christ has fulfilled the standard for you and believe in Him and His name. Are you disappointed with God? He is faithful. And alongside His faithfulness, in which He does things right and well, He is merciful and He is kind. Our Father, we thank You for the reminder of this passage, of Your mercy, Your grace, Your justice, the openness of Your salvation. Would You cause those of us who do not trust today to respond to You in faith, And would you cause those of us who do believe to speak with boldness the truth that Christ will not disappoint. There's no sadness with following Jesus ultimately. He will be everything that we need. Would you make that a reality in our lives and hearts today? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.